If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You're done with your Oreo. <laughs> yeah, done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, and do you really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... Murdery, murdery, thingy, thingy, Okay. Go team. Third time's the charm. This is our third time? Technically, I like. Was our second? I started it and then I stopped it and then I started it again, and then we ate and then. Yeah, I, we got hungry like mid. <laughs> we were like about to start, and you're like, "No, actually, I need to eat." <laughs> I have priorities, you know. Food is important. You know, school supplies are important, but not as important as staying alive. <laughs> also, eating. Yeah. You know. That's an inside joke. <laughs> I think I told it on here. I think you did, actually, yeah. I think you did. Okay, so... Mystery murdery thingy. Yeah, did you, like, read the, the caption? That's how what you caption? know what podcast this is, okay? We don't necessarily need to introduce ourselves. <laughs> it's like what everyone does, though. We are... Miss, this is... Mystery <laughs> Wait, murdery thingy. This is... Mystery murdery thingy Mystery murdery murdery thingy 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 I'm Mario. I mean I'm Chloe. I'm not I'm I'm not Mario. How can you tell us apart? We sound so much the same. No, we don't. No, we don't. That's I was I was joking. Oh. It wasn't funny. I didn't catch it. Sorry. Do better. Yeah. Do you know, okay, sometimes so you try and... We are talking about the 27 Club round three. Part three, last part. So we're going to do another couple and then we're going to do kind of, uh, you know... Some honorable mentions. Yes. Honorable, very honorable mentions. And then after this, we're not going to have a theme or anything. We're just going to go back to... Finding out some random stuff. Right. I've got something good, y'all. You've got something good lined up. <clears throat> I do have something good. It's going to be kind of kind of our hometown it's murder. It's definitely just, our know. new hometown murder, yes. Yeah, so look look forward to that next time. It's a 2020 episode. Excuse Go find me. it. Lots of good material in 2020 episodes. Always. Yeah. But until then, we're going to finish up the 27 Club. Okay, I think you should go first, because I'm really excited to hear about What's-His-Face. Which? Richard. Okay, but he's my second one. Sorry. 
feel like that happened last time too. <laughs> um, and just to kind of mention, because I realized I kept saying the Twenty Seven Club book, but I never said who it was by. Which probably is it called kind of annoying. the Twenty Seven Club book? No, it's called Twenty Seven or the Twenty Seven Club or something like that. I can't even really remember. I'm sorry. It's very sketchy. Um, but it's by Howard Soames. S O M N E S. So if you're looking for it, it's it's a really good book. I thought it was really interesting. You know, it's not perfect. Definitely had some shortfalls, but I thought it did a really good job of kind of weaving the stories together and, um, you know, giving us a lot of good kind of insight into these uh, kind of six central 27 club figures. Yeah. I feel like writing a book about this would be difficult. Yes, because you're dealing with different timelines. You're dealing with people who, although their stories are fairly similar, are like also quite distinct from one another. Yes. yes. And you have like some where things are happening at the same time and they're interacting with one another. Yeah. And then you have others where it's like 30 years later. So, but he, I thought he did it well, actually, kind of weaving them all together and not leaving any one story hanging for too long, kind of like. That's good. Pacing it, you know, fairly, fairly uh, nicely. And then, you know, by the end, he was basically telling the story of um, what happened after everyone died, which I thought was kind of interesting, too. And how for a couple of them, uh, especially like Janis Joplin and, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison, like their families ended up getting super rich off of oh. what they had done in their lifetimes, even though they were quite, you know, That's they, they, their families were not supportive of what they were doing generally. Yeah. And like Janice's sister, who like she never got along with her whole life, is like super rich now, or at least was, you know, whatever, after Pearl. Because, you know, that was a, kind of another thing with some of them. Like Pearl was her mom. No, Pearl was her, her nickname, was Janice's nickname. Oh, wow. I yeah. knew that. Yeah. Um, but Pearl was, the, she only completed recording it right before she died, so it came out right after she died. Yes, yes. Which is a big theme with, with all of the 27 Club members, is like, they continued to have output even after they died, because they had so much, like, backlog, because they were so, like, diligent in their work. But when Pearl came out, she her estate went from, like, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars to, like, tens of millions of dollars. That's insane. Because they sold, like, 10 million copies of it, you know, like, right off the bat. It was just, like, super, super popular. Okay, so are you going to go first? Yes, but it's kind of like, you know, like we did last time talking about the book a little bit, because I actually did finish it. So, you know, just kind of wanted to... To wrap that up a little bit, but I'll probably mention some other stuff if I if I think of it from that too. But yeah, the first one I'm going to talk about is Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, who was born 1960, lived till 1988, uh, but he was 27 when he died. And Jean-Michel Basquiat, if you're not aware, was an American artist. American? Um, mm-hmm. He's yeah, a he's, super French name. That's because his dad was Haitian. Oh, and, French you know, Creole. Right. His dad was like mainly spoke French and Creole. So um, I'll get into it a little bit, but he was a very kind of multilingual person as well. Yeah, his dad was Haitian. His mom was Puerto Rican, uh, but he grew up mainly in Brooklyn. 
And he was mostly known as a visual artist, as a painter for the most part. But he was also definitely a writer, and uh, he also had a band for a little while called Gray. So he sort of fits into a little bit of a few different categories, but but mainly known as a visual artist. And like I said, he did grow up in New York City, mainly in uh, Brooklyn, where he started out uh, doing graffiti art with a friend of his named Al Diaz. And they would do these tags under the name uh, Samo, S-A-M-O, which I guess uh, stood for same old shit. <laughs> so it was it was it, it very much tongue in cheek, and they you know started out doing it kind of in their neighborhood, but they ended up going to Manhattan to like Soho, and basically trying to impress slash intrigue the art community there. Yeah, Soho is the place to be. Right. So they started tagging you know in in the kind of places where they knew the artists were. Yeah. And it it really very much worked for them, <laughs> or at least for Jean-Michel Basquiat. Um, so some of the, they would tag basically these little, like, cryptic messages. So one of them said, Samo as an escape clause, and another one was uh, Samo for the art pimps. So they were kind of these little funny cryptic messages, and they would always do um, the, like, copyright symbol, <laughs> which I guess was a, another kind of running joke, you know, because it's, it's like... Yeah, that's that's just they're they're like whatever, but yeah, it's also official, super official. And uh, Basquiat was, as many of the Twenty Seven Club members were, a very precocious, um, intelligent child. He was reading and writing by the age of four, and he was always super artistic. Like his mom would always take him to art museums. He was always like really, really interested uh, in art. And like I said, he was very much multilingual as well. He knew English, uh, French, and Spanish by the age of 11, uh, mainly because of his Haitian and Puerto Rican descent. Dang. And one of the seminal kind of experiences, what he says was like his kind of most uh, vivid memory from his childhood was when he was about seven or eight and he got hit by a car when he was playing in the street and he was badly hurt enough that he was in the hospital for, like, several weeks. Excuse me. And his mom bought him a copy of Grey's Anatomy. If you've ever seen that book, it's, it's like, um, an, an early kind of medical textbook. So it's got a lot of um, medical drawings and, and um, you know, really fascinating to him, you know, kind of detailed uh, explanations of the workings of the body. So what the bad... Um, soap opera is named after is an actual thing. Yes, the the difference oh, wow. there being G R E Y, right, or G R A Y. I believe the book is G R A Y and the show is G R E Y, yeah. right? Because it's D- Dorian Gray or whatever it is. I have no idea. Or is I that never watch it? Or maybe that's the book. Anyway, I've now ne- I've never watched it either. But yes, that is also to what that is referring. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Jim Morrison was also really into Grey's Anatomy. So, kind of got some connections there um, with the other 27 Club members, too. But it was a, a, a book that he would use as inspiration as well when he started making uh, visual art. 
His parents, Basquiat's parents, were also separated when he was young, like a lot of the other 27 club members. And his mother was institutionalized when he was 13, and he was raised uh, by his uh, father from that point on, although he wasn't really because he ran away from home at the age of 15. And, you know, like Kurt Cobain, he ended up sleeping rough for a while and then sleeping on friends' couches a lot and with uh, women. Basically, he was very, very popular with the women. <laughs> Basquiat was a very attractive guy and really interesting. And uh, he, he, he never really had that hard of a time finding a place to sleep as long as there was a woman with an apartment, you know, who who uh, hey. was interested in him, which was a lot. Um, as we'll get into uh, later, he actually dated uh, Madonna for a little while as well. Oh. Before hey. she was famous. So he ran Funny. away from home at 15, sleeping kind of out, you know, in the open, mainly in the park. And uh, even though he was, you know, very smart um, and did really well in school for a time, um, sort of like Janis Joplin as well, he eventually drifted away from his studies and he eventually ended up finishing up his high school diploma at uh, an alternative school called City as School, which was, I guess, for kids like him who were very gifted in some ways, but sort of recalcitrant, uh, not able to sort of fit into the structure of most schools, you know, so they, they sort of worked with those kids. And he claimed that his dad, um, who kicked him out of the house around that time for dropping out of the regular high school, was also beating him. That's what Basquiat says. But his two other siblings kind of dispute that. So it's a little unclear. And he, Why would they dispute that and why would he lie about it i'm not totally sure it's it's kind of hard to know yeah i feel like both sides are weird there right i feel like there's definitely a world in which they could both be right maybe there was more to it than the siblings knew about or maybe that could make sense it was just that he was very strict and you know Maybe he was harder on Jean-Michel than he was on the other kids. I, I, I don't really know. But it was, a, you know, definitely a situation in which he was always kind of trying to get the, um, trying to gain the acceptance of his father. And when he became famous and rich, he tried to use that, you know, buying, you know, fancy dinners and showing off. That he had made it, basically. Um, but I think he always had kind of that chip on his shoulder because of his relationship with his dad and kind of how he grew up. So once his dad kicked him out, though, he sold T-shirts and made homemade postcards just to make some money. You know, he was just selling them on the street to tourists and whoever would have them. And this was in, like, the 70s and 80s? Um, this is... In the late 70s. So this is when he was like 16, 17. Okay. And he was born in 1960. So this okay. is like the late 70s in, in Manhattan, which was a very seedy time in Manhattan. Mm. Um, it was not like it is now. Um, it, the uh, Times Square was full of drug addicts and sex oh shops. God. It was basically a red light district 
at the time. And the city was full of, you know, smog and the Hudson River was totally polluted and it was just rampant with crime. Um, one of the most dangerous cities in the country at, at that time, you know, very much in contrast to the way it is now. <laughs> so that that was kind of the milieu from which uh, Basquiat is, is, is coming. And he always wanted to kind of transcend his environment as well. He always wanted to be famous, uh, like Robert Johnson, like yeah. Amy Winehouse. Yeah. He, he knew from the time that he was a young teenager. That seems like a common theme, too. Fairly common, yeah. Ambition. Exactly, yeah. Ambition and um, that drive to become known. And, and to be remembered, almost as if they knew they had to get it done early. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a right. good point. And, and that's some, weird. Yeah, and some of them kind of talk about it in that way as well, that, that they're, they're not going to make it that long, yeah. so they got to get it done now. Um, and he did eventually become a little bit of a local celebrity um, in Manhattan. In December of 1978, there was a article in the Village Voice and that sort of began his precipitous rise to fame. And like I said earlier, he was first known as a graffiti artist, as Samo. And, um, of course, it also helped that he was really ambitious. He was doing everything that he could, you know, to try to to get to that place, right? To, to get to that number one spot, um, so to speak. And in 1979, he started regularly appearing on a public access TV show called uh, TV Party, um, <laughs> which they, they had some clips of in the documentary that I watched. It, it seemed like it was pretty fun. It was a talk show? It was kind of a, a talk show, uh, chat show, but I think they would also do performances. And they would also put up just, like, random words on the screen, like, as running commentary while they were <laughs> through. It, it seems very sort of, like, loose and avant-garde. Um, and like I said, it was a public access, you know, TV show as well. And around that time, he also started the band uh, Grey, um, which did the music for a movie also um, called, uh, I think, Downtown 81, in which uh, Basquiat basically played a version of himself. Oh, he was in the movie, too? Mm-hmm. He, like, starred in the movie, and, and then the band that he was in also um, did uh, the music for it. And it was kind of like an art rock band, noise band kind of thing. It was it was kind of interesting. I, I could only find a little bit of their music, but um, kind of an inter interesting stuff. And in 1980, uh, one of the biggest um, points you know, liminal points for Basquiat happened when he met and befriended Andy Warhol. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, he was very close to Andy Warhol. There's a little bit of dispute, certainly in the press at the time, there was a sense that Andy Warhol was exploiting Basquiat. Uh, toward How the, so? Well, towards the end of his life, Warhol had um, grown to be sort of disfavored by the art critics and by the art world, uh, they were sort of disillusioned by him and they had moved on, you know, to more like minimalist sort of works at that point. He was not in favor uh, toward the end of, of his life when he met Basquiat in the early 80s. So some people thought that Warhol was using Basquiat's rise 
uh, to sort of ride his coattails back into fame as well. Okay. And sort of exploiting Basquiat's style to try to re- reclaim the, you know, his old spot in the art world. But that's not how Basquiat saw it. You know, he, he saw Warhol as a friend, as a kindred spirit, a- as each other's, w- one of each other's very, very few true kindred spirits. Like they why, were, why use the word kindred spirits instead of friends? Because it, I think it was more than friendship. They recognized in each other something that they didn't see in most of humanity. They were both a bit of, you know, even though they, they were both very popular, very gregarious, they would go out to parties and to clubs and stuff. They were both a bit of misanthropes as well. And, and, and I think they were both very cynical about the world. But they, I think, recognized in each other a common way of seeing the world. And that's something that's, I think, deeper than just becoming friends. Like, Busquette had friends, but Warhol was the one of the very few people with whom he seemed to connect artistically. And they, they actually, like, made a number of works together as well that weren't well-received at the time, but have since become you know, recognized as, as really some of the best works that each of them made. Yeah, so was, that, it, I feel like that happens a lot mm-hmm. post- posthumously mm-hmm. in the art world. Right. It's a common theme. For sure, definitely. So, like I said, he met Warhol in 1980, and this is around the time, like right after this time, is when Basquiat started to really, really blow up. So... He started appearing in some group shows, and in 1981, he had his first solo show, uh, Basquiat did, and it was a big success. Like, people just really connected with his works. Um, And they, they talked in the documentary about how people who were, you know, art critics, who were art collectors, people who weren't necessarily well versed in art, they all sort of took something from his work that it, that it was sort of relatable but also full of references to other artists and it it was kind of high and low or or transcendent of the notion of high and low in a really interesting way that um people either really loved at the time or they sort of wrote him off at the time but he, he certainly had a lot of success, especially early on. And as part of that rise to fame, he started to become really inundated with hangers-on and people who, you know, wanted to exploit him for his money and his, you know, success. So he was, there were people like that. Oh, there were there were a lot of people around him like that, for sure. Um, like some of the other 27 Club members, he, you know, was really kind of dragged down in some ways by his fame and by all the people who came with it, who were not necessarily, um, you know, the... Invited. 
Exactly, or being, you know, helpful to his making art. So eventually he went out to California for a while, and he showed in the prestigious uh, Gagosian Gallery in West Hollywood. And like I mentioned earlier, he was at this time dating uh, Madonna, who um, was not famous, who was like trying to become famous also at that point. And he told um, the gallery owner that she was going to be like one of the biggest stars in the world. And, wow. of course, at that point, they didn't know. that, like, oh, yeah, you know, she actually was going to become one of the biggest stars in the world. That's insane. <laughs> I know. And uh, Basquiat was really artistically heavily influenced by Robert Rauschenberg, whom he met out in California. And like Rauschenberg, his works fall into what some people term uh, primitivism. So it, it's basically works that, don't appear, you know, finished in some way, or they, they look as though they were made in a more kind of direct, um, one might say, improvisatorily seeming style. I mean, you, you can look up his works on Basquiat.com, or if you just, you know, Google image Basquiat, and you'll you'll see what I mean. But, you know, he um, had a, a, a certain style that was uh, definitely influenced by Rauschenberg. Also, he was very heavily influenced by Pablo Picasso. Mm. He said that the first piece of art that, like, really affected him was uh, seeing Picasso's uh, Guernica. And if you, if you look at uh, Picasso's work from around that time, his sort of... Uh, cubist style it's very um, heavily influential on Basquiat but Basquiat talked about himself as transcending that cubist style it wasn't just breaking down an image and uh, displaying it from multiple angles simultaneously on a 2D format it, it was completely blowing up the image entirely and showing it in a much more um, deconstructed style. People also term his works neo-expressionist. So uh, suffice it to say that he was making a shit ton of work and was really, you know, steeped in the art world. And uh, Basquiat also made a rap album, produced a rap album. What? Uh, a 12 inch in uh, 1983 and he, he was friends with with a lot of rappers and and musicians as well so the words the music the visual art he did they, a lot of stuff he did a shit ton of stuff they all melded together for Basquiat there was no division in Basquiat's mind between his life and his art it was it was all the same like he was doing it Simultaneously, they talk about how he would have people come and party with him, and he would like talk to someone, and he would get an idea, and he would go and work on a, a painting, and then go back to the party. Or he would see something on TV, and it would inspire him, and he would go add to a painting, and then come back. Like it, it was always there for him; it was always present, and he it would there was never a time he wasn't working on his art. And because of that, he was incredibly prolific for having only lived till 27. I mean, 
he made the amount of work that one would expect from an artist in their entire lifetime. He produced over 1,500 drawings. Oh, my God. So Between 600 and 1,000 paintings, some of which are extremely large canvases. Uh, he also made a number of sculptures and a number of other mixed-media work. So thousands and thousands of uh, pieces of art. He would also just draw on just random stuff. If he didn't have paper, uh, he would go pick up things from the, the street, um, old, you know, abandoned windows or doors, um, pieces of metal. It, it didn't matter. He would make work anywhere, including on other people's clothes uh. and other people's property who did not want him to draw on their stuff. <laughs> and, and But he would do it because he, he had that sort of irrepressible need to create that was sort of all-consuming within him and, and of him, I guess, eventually. And he would also use uh, Xerox to Xerox machines to create new works from fragments of old works. Oh, okay. And that was apparently a style... That's smart. Yeah, that, that he kind of learned from uh, William S. Burroughs, who's mainly known as an author, fucking insane author. He, I, I love his works, but he is crazy. Um, How so? Well, his, his stuff is, is just very... Um, sort of gratuitous in a way. Like, he describes a lot of, you know, detailed, um, explicit sexual material in his writings, uh, violent materials. A lot of it is his almost memoir of being on all these different drugs and his experience in that and then writing about it afterwards. R Whoa. Really interesting guy, William Burroughs. Well, yeah, I guess. I see how you can like that. Yeah. Like, it's an interesting phenomena coming from that type of, of brain. Mm-hmm. And, but William Burroughs was also a visual artist, and he actually showed works with um, Basquiat, and they were, like, contemporaries in the art world. Although Burroughs was, like, much older, like, decades yeah. older. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, do-do-do-do... So, like Jim Morrison and Richie Edwards, who I'm going to talk about next, um, Basquiat's words were, like, really important to him. He, he thought of himself also as a writer. Um, and his writing and his art, and, and, and his art involves a lot of writing. Like, words were very important in his, in his visual art. There were, all, were always words in the paintings, and sometimes they would be, like, um, slashed out. Do they make sense? Or sometimes yes, sometimes no. Part of the like cut and paste style that he learned from William Burroughs was to have these kind of odd juxtapositions and like random assemblages of words sometimes. But the writing and the art, you know, it, it was definitely comprehensible and the ideas that are within it are mostly kind of these dialectics between different extremes, kind of these very strong juxtapositions of ideas. For example, poverty versus wealth, or the powerful versus the enslaved, uh, or acceptance versus racism. Uh, a lot of his works dealt with uh, racism and the plight of 
black people and, uh, you know, sort of downtrodden people. Oh, he was black, right? Yes, he, he was definitely black. And a lot of his works were also centered on the sort of mystique of the of famous black figures. So, like, um, famous black athletes a lot of the times, but also black kings, um, like African kings. And the crown was a big, like, a three-pointed crown was a big symbol in his works. So he drew a lot of inspiration from those notable black figures and also just from the everyday street life in Manhattan. And uh, this is where we're going to get into his death. Um, like other 27 Club members, Basquiat was also a regular heroin user. Never a good thing. Um, and he was a, a self-conscious heroin user, kind of like Cobain. He chose to become a heroin okay, addict. Okay, yeah. But for Basquiat, it wasn't self-medicating so much as he felt that he needed to do these drugs to be successful artistically. He felt that oh. he could not truly create without them. That is a that's a dangerous mindset. And a fallacy, I think. I mean, I'm not again judging him for having thought that. I'm sure he felt like that was true in that time in place, but yeah, I, I, I also, <laughs> uh, profoundly disagree. And like, you know, some of his friends like Julian Schnabel, who ended up making the Basquiat movie, um, fictionalized movie about him, you know, was the, the quote that Julian Schnabel said was like, yeah, I, I prefer coffee or something like that. Oh, you know, okay, yeah. Like, like, no, like you did, like you didn't need to do this, Jean Michel. You know, you didn't need to have the heroin to to be a successful artist. But you know, I I guess that was part of it, and also just the the rigors and the incredible pressure that he was under. But like some of the other Twenty Seven Club members as well, he did briefly get clean just before mm -hmm. he died. Mm -hmm. So he, he went to Maui, and he really loved Hawaii. He said that was, like, his favorite place on Earth. Aww. And he visited a lot of different places. Uh, he visited um, the, uh, the Ivory Coast a number of times. He visited, Where was he originally from again? From Brooklyn. Yes, okay. Yeah, he grew up in Brooklyn. He um, briefly lived, I think, in Puerto Rico for a time when he was younger, but, but mainly Brooklyn. So on the... Um, the day of his death, August 12th, 1988, his then-girlfriend found him uh, in his art studio laying on the ground in a pool of his own vomit, uh, sort of reminiscent of, you Jimmy know, Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix, um, dead of a heroin overdose at the age of 27. And uh, since Basquiat's death in 1988, his influence has just grown and grown, you know, uh, he has been uh, a big influence on writers, on other visual artists, obviously, but also on, you know, musicians. And he did see himself sort of self-consciously as in this important line of artists like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Billie Holiday, Charlie Parker. And of course, all those people dealt with addiction and dealt with 
you know, their own demons in their lives. And I think that might have been a part of the reason why he felt like he had to engage in that sort of lifestyle in order to be like his heroes, you know, who who sort of went through some of the same stuff. And um, he was also and remains influential as a breaker of the color barrier into, so to speak, into the serious, quote-unquote, serious art world. He was the first black artist to become super famous as a studio artist. Mm -hmm. And as far as the things that I was reading about him said, although I feel like that's probably not true, but anyway. Why? Well, I just feel like we're probably also, I feel forgetting like that's kind someone. of a thing that's hard to pinpoint yeah, now that I think about it. It just, uh, yeah, it just seems like how do you really define that? But certainly in that time, uh, he was unique in in the environment in which he worked. There wasn't really another black, young, famous artist working in the art world at that time. And his uh, work has become extremely highly prized and extremely highly valued. In fact, in 2017, so just last year, um, one of his works, untitled 1982, most of his works were untitled, sold at uh, auction for a U.S. record $110 million. Holy mama. Yeah, to a Japanese billionaire. So Wow. Certainly he has the recognition now that he sort of didn't feel like he got in his own lifetime because he didn't get, you know, a, a show in at the Whitney or at the MoMA in New York. They didn't want him during his lifetime, even though he had a lot of success. Uh-huh. But that ultimate success, that ultimate recognition, which is what he really was craving, right, that to be known as a truly great artist was in some sense denied to him. And and maybe that was part of what tortured him as well at the end. But like I said before, you can definitely go to Basquiat.com to take a look at his work. And I I would definitely, you know, I've always really liked his work and there's obviously a lot of other stuff in his life and to do with him. You know, I just barely scratched the surface. Um, Lots, lots more to get into with Basquiat, but, um, yeah, and and that movie, you know, by Julian Schnabel, I've watched that before. It's really good. Um, but in terms of my sources for this one, I looked at the, of course, Wikipedia page, uh, also his page on biography.com, and uh, a long article in Vanity Fair by Anthony Hayden Guest, and then that uh, documentary about um, Basquiat called The Radiant Child. And that's uh, Jean-Michel. You want to do one of yours now? <laughs> you want to go? You want to do this thing? <laughs> okay, I am doing Mia Zapata. And she... Does that okay. mean shoe? Zapata? No, it means shoe is zapato. Oh. Zapatos. Right, right. Um, Thank I'm you. Not... You're our resident Spanish expert, so I appreciate that. Not as much as I would have been four years ago, which makes me sad. But anyway. Yeah. All right, all right. So. All right, all right, all right, all right. I feel like we say this every episode. All right, all right. All right, all right. (laughs) Okay, so. Be a lot cooler if you did. She was born August 25th, 1965, and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. So she 
I, yeah, I mean, like all the other 27 Club members, she was very, very passionate about what she was doing and also wanted to know what she, that she wanted um, to uh, be an artist from mm -hmm. a young age. So she could play the piano and the guitar by age nine. Wow. Yeah. Um, so she was a quick learning, learner and she started really young. So in 1984, Four, I believe. Yes, in 1984, she enrolled at Antioch, I think that's how you say it, Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, as a liberal arts student. Um, she found a job at a bar, and that's where, oh, it was after she formed the punk band The Gits, which is the, the main band that she's in. They were created in 1986, and they relocated to Seattle. The grunge scene and the, like, punk scene in Seattle during this time was the hot spot. The idea of, like, rock and roll and, like, an underground type of music is very, very popular at this time. And a lot of people were going here to start their careers. The Gits and Mia in particular had a lot of um, influence on this... The, the environment and the culture and the community in, in general. Mm -hmm. So she was seen as a, a huge feminist because she was the only girl in a, in an, in like a very established band at the time. And there weren't any really other bands like that uh, with a girl frontman. There was Pearl Jam, Nirvana. They're both really popular, but she was the main, the main one that women tended to look up to, um, because of it. So they released popular singles in 1990 and 1991. As their popularity increased, they went on an international tour in 1990. And then in 1992, they released their first album called Frenchie the Bully. And so what's interesting about the Gits and what also reminded me of Chance the Rapper was that they were, they were an independent um, band. They weren't signed to any label. Hmm. They had independent songs and independent albums, and they did all of this independently. Wow. So. Which I feel like would have been a lot harder to do back then, because you didn't have the internet. Exactly. Um, so she... So like I said, um, when I was like reading quotes and what people said about her, that she, that she seemed like... Um, she was one of those people who cared a lot about other people. And like I said, she was very popular um, within the the um, community. And uh, she was somebody who was very, obviously very talented and like a very like vibrant, happy person. And after her death, obviously the entire community was extremely shocked. So she was killed. She was actually murdered. She was murdered July 7th, 1999. Or 1993, sorry. She left a place called the Comet Tavern at 2 a.m. after a show. So there's kind of like a timeline and like we followed her steps based on um, like the people who were with her. She went to go visit a rehearsal studio. And then when she was done there, she went to go see a friend who lived in the same studio. And then the last time she was seen was leaving that friend's house. She was never seen alive again. Um... An hour later, at around 3 a.m., her body was found. It was beaten, raped, and strangled. So she wasn't just, like, shot and killed and ran. This was personal, which mm -hmm. I'll get into later why it's kind of interesting. 
Um, she had been beaten, raped, and strangled. She had no ID on her at the time, so she wasn't identified until the medical examiner, who was a fan of the Gits, recognized her. Oh, wow. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. So, one of the main clues that they had to the case was that a man heard a terrifying scream around 3 a.m., and he lived close to a place where Mia could have gone. But even though that's, like, kind of a clue, it still could be something that's unrelated. Um, so it's not like a, it's more circumstantial. Mm-hmm. All in all, very little forensic evidence was found. And investigators thought that the murder and the crime scene could have taken place in different areas. If we were looking at this, the scream theory, if they heard a scream come from here, but the body was found here, they think it might have been dragged or something. The autopsy revealed signs of struggle. And the medical examiner said that she that if she hadn't been strangled, she would have died from internal bleeding from the beating. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very brutal. So like I said, her murder sent shockwaves throughout the entire community. A lot of good things came out of her legacy. Um, I feel like those who knew her did a really gr- great job of... Um, Showing that they they mm-hmm. that they loved her and how important she was, and that they want they want her to her spirit to be alive and to keep an impact. So directly in response, friends of hers founded Home Alive, which is a non a nonprofit dedication to teaching women self defense. And um, the Gitz's label mates, Seven Year Bitch, recorded their seriously whoop ass 1994 album Viva Zapata. So. The band went on after she died, and they called themselves Seven Year Bitch, Um, and they made an album in tribute. Joan Jett uh, joined up with the remaining members of the Gits um, for a a tour under the name Evil Stig, which is Gits Live Backwards. They released a live album in 1996, and Home Alive released two benefit compilation albums featuring artists like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, The Gossip, and Nirvana. So because of the little forensic evidence and no eyewitnesses, uh, the, the, um, the case didn't, wasn't solved until 10 years later. So it was a cold case for 10 years. So what basically happened was DNA analysis became available, um, and a possible technology. So in 2003, Jesus Mesquia was arrested in connection with the murder. So his DNA was found on the body and it tied him to the murder. He also had a record. He'd been arrested for domestic abuse in 2002 and had a history of assault and violence against um, women in general. And they they actually tested the DNA twice. The first time they tested it, it nothing came up, but then Jesus was arrested and his information was put into the system and Mm. when they tried it again they found him right um and similarly a report was filed against him for indecent exposure um in seattle just two weeks prior to her being murdered so he was like around right so he was convicted in 2004 and sentenced to 37 years but then he appealed and on the next trial he was sentenced to 36 years and he's still in jail to this day right um yeah, that's all I've got. Kill cool. My uh, sources were pitch a Pitchfork article by Tom Brahan, and I want you to guess what my next one was. Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Wikipedia, correct. The greatest website ever created. Okay. 
All right, that's an argument. Okay. All right. So now I'm going to do uh, my last one, and then you'll do your last one, and then we're going to do a little bit of a round roundup of some of the other ones. Well, you're going to do a roundup because my last one isn't that long. Right. Okay. So we'll yeah we'll we'll just do some ran- some random ones as well. So yeah, I'm going to talk about Richie Edwards. Um, yes, Richie Edwards may be the most mysterious of all of the 27 Club members. He lived from 1967 till 1995. As far as we know, Mr. Edwards was a Welsh guitarist, singer, and songwriter, and he actually went by the stage name Richie James. Hey. Sort of reminiscent of Jimmy James. Okay. So I thought that was kind of a, a weird coincidence, right? Uh, so Richie Edwards, uh, a.k.a. Richie James, grew up as a very bright little boy who got offered a scholarship to a really good boarding school, um, but chose to turn it down to stay with his friends uh, in Wales. Aww. And, um, yeah. he. But he was always, you know, a good student. Thought of himself as a really good student. Uh, but ended up graduating college with what's called a two-to-one degree. Which is something they have there that we don't have here. Um, but it's sort of like a lower level of a bachelor's degree. So it's like, I think, somewhere between like an associate's and a bachelor's. Okay. Like what we have here. Um, and he graduated with a political science degree. Poli sci. Was always really interested in politics. Interesting. But the the two to one degree was a little bit disappointing for him. He was mainly a lyricist, and his lyrics were always very political. Like I said, he was a political science major. And originally, he was actually a driver and a roadie for Manic Street Preachers. So he started out just as, as their kind of, like, roadie guy. Oh, so he wasn't, like, in, in the band at he, first? Uh, exactly. Originally, he was just, like, a fan, and then he worked for them. But what? very quickly, he managed to rise to become the front man and the fourth band member. How? Um, just by being really interesting, I guess, and having great lyrics. And I don't know. He just he managed to, you know... To, to rise to that occasion. Mario, tell us your favorite band. My favorite band is The Residents. So what if you had a job with The Residents being their driver? That would and all be of a sudden, amazing. You're being you, doing your thing, and all of a sudden they're at, they ask you to rehearse with them. Right. Just jam with them one time. And right. then they continue to rehearse, and then all of a sudden you're a main man. That would be cool. Wouldn't that be, be insane? Yeah. Yeah, it would be. Definitely. Good for him. <laughs> Good for you, Richie. So, um, Edwards, like other 27 Club members, was our way we kind of... How many times have we said that? Keep saying that. Um, there's a thread in general. Right. Yeah, if if there's one overall point from all of this, is that there's a weird amount that's alike amongst these people. Yeah. Like, it's not just the fact that they all died at 27. There's a, There's a lot more to it. So he was always very driven, and and that's part of why he was able to, you know, rise from driver to band leader so quickly, because he he, uh, he wanted to become big. No, it wasn't. Was it a pun? 
he was driven, so he drove. Oh, yes. I did not even realize that. So there's a quote from his sister uh, who said that he, quote, he was incredibly focused. He was the force behind the band as he was the one writing reams and reams of letters to record uh, to record companies, management companies, and music magazines, close quote. So, you know, he, he really wanted this band to, like, become more popular, to become, like, the biggest band in the Do world. The PR. Yeah, exactly. And unlike uh, some other of the 27ers, Edward's family and his parents fully supported him from the beginning. Mm. And they were always very much on the same page. Like, it seemed like Mia's was like that, too. Yeah. Cool. Um, definitely not the case with a lot of other ones, um, as, we've, as we've talked about. And like Jim Morrison especially... It was always more about Richie Edwards' words than the music for him, but also about his design and, like, visual design and also just the sort of overall direction of the band and what what they were going to kind of be like. But at the beginning, he was very much a musical amateur. Like, he did not know how to play guitar, but he was ostensibly the rhythm guitarist. And even to the point where at some of the early shows, he would not be plugged in and he would just be faking it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm telling you about that. Um, Oh, God. But he had those lyrics. Could he sing? um, Well, we listened to him. Oh, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, he he could sing. I mean, it's a a particular idiom. But, um, yeah, I I think he, he does it well, you know, for what he's doing. Or in the in the style in which he's doing it, I guess. And um, the last album that he was around for, for which he put in like 80% of the lyrics or something, was called uh, The Holy Bible. And that was put out in 1994. That's a good name for an album. It's a good name for an album, right? And uh, very, very political album. Um, yeah. And we're, that's when we're, we're listening to some of it. So Richie Edwards, um, you know, they were having some some success with their music, especially in the UK, and they were getting to be more popular in like Australia and Japan, but they never really made it into the US, mm-hmm. partly because they had a kind of falling out with the company that was supposed to distribute them in the US, mm-hmm. so that didn't help. But they were actually supposed to go to tour the U.S. like right before he disappeared. So, uh, like I said, the Holy Bible was the last album that he was around for, and he did disappear on February first, nineteen ninety-five. But we'll get into the specifics of that in just a minute. So he can just also to mention that they continued to put out work. Uh, of his after his disappearance as well. Posthumously? Posthumously. I like that word. That's also a word that comes up a lot with the 27 Club members because they were so driven, they were so prolific, uh, typically, that they had a backlog. They had works, you know, left to, to, to be put out. That, that's yes, what I was saying. Yes. Yeah. They all also feel like, I also feel like all of them had a lot of potential ahead of them too. Oh, yeah, definitely. And he was very, Richie Edwards was very influential as a, as a songwriter. 
Uh, the Manic Street Preachers, you know, they were basically trying to recapture the spirit of punk. Like, they felt like they wanted to be in opposition to what was very popular at that time in the early 90s in the UK, which was, you know, house music, acid music, uh, shoegazer music, um, hmm. stuff that was sort of uh, very um, contemplative, um, slow, kind of r- rhythmic, droney kind of stuff. They were not about that. They were more like The Clash. Um, they were more into punk music and wanted to um, bring that aspect to it. And they wanted to be seen as dangerous, like truly dangerous Ooh. people. Um, really? What, like violent dangerous? or like Sort of, yeah. Not uh. towards others so much, but they did call themselves uh, Generation Terrorists. Oh. And that was actually the name of their first album. So they, they huh. wanted to be... Seen as sort of in your face. I guess that makes sense because I guess nowadays as someone who I'm really into pop punk and I'm also into punk in general Mm -hmm. and it's really hard nowadays to establish yourself as punk and not establish yourself as pop punk. Right. Because I'm going to mention a band in particular, Five Seconds of Summer. I love them and everything, but... And they've been trying to establish themselves as like this hardcore punk band and I think they're doing a good job, but everybody else doesn't isn't isn't playing along with it. And it seems like there's two different types of five seconds of summer fans. It's the ones who were super punk, and then the and it's the like fourteen year old girls who are like looking at how hot they are and like listening to their music and stuff like that. Right. I think the difficulty with punk or with trying to make work that you want people to perceive as punk is that punk music is very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Earnest. And sometimes when you're trying to be earnest, you can come off as disingenuous. And that definitely happened with Manic Street Preachers at the beginning, at least. Um, There was a particular interview in which Richie Edwards, Edwards was like kind of called out. It's like, are you really, is this really for real? Are you really like this? Or are you just putting on a show? And he actually carved the number four and the word real on his arm (gasps) during the interview. It's like, oh, you want to know if I'm for real? I'm for real. That's pretty badass. Yeah. And uh, that was... That's a big uh, fuck you. Yeah, that was the kind of guy he was. You know, he if, if you were challenging him, he would he would challenge you right back. In other words, that's how you establish your presence in the punk world. Exactly. And um, Edward's behavior in that vein, that sort of like self-harming, bizarre behavior, did continue and really increase as the band's success also Increased. So did he use heroin too? He, um, I'm not totally sure. Um, I think he was more did of... Did he have some kind of vice? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. So um, the for real incident um, was a great help to them. Like it really did prove that they were for real. Yeah. And Sony records, um, signed them soon after that. And they started to get some top 40 singles. And eventually they had a top 10 single 
with a cover of the song Suicide is Painless, a theme from M.A.S.H., which is, you know, obviously kind of a bit creepy, right, considering what ended up happening. Um, Yeah. And as their success peaked, Edward's mental state did start to deteriorate. Um, He was definitely an alcoholic, so I did see that. And he also suffered from anorexia. Oh, geez. So he he was certainly dealing with some issues with some vices, you know, for sure. Um, And he did enter a private clinic in early 1994. And again, like we've talked about before, he seemed like he was getting better, you know, right towards the end. He said, you know, I... I've kicked all my bad habits, you know, I really am feel like this is what he was telling people, you know, right before the end, putting on this sort of brave face, one might say. But really, what was really happening was that Edward's mental state was probably at its nadir, at its lowest point, in other words, as they were finishing up the album, The Holy Bible, that um, was uh, put out just, you know, after he... Uh, ended up disappearing. So he checked out of a hotel in London, like I said earlier, on February 1st, 1995. Okay. And his car was found by the Severin Bridge near Bristol about two weeks later. How far away is that? Do you know? It's not that far. And it's not really that clear what he was doing for those two weeks or how long the car had been there. But there is some indications that he was alive for part of that time. So during those two weeks, was he missing or? He was missing, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. And, and he, he was reported missing about two days later. Okay, and then they found his car. Got they him. found his car about two weeks later. Okay. And that bridge, the Severin Bridge, is a really popular suicide spot. So there, there's, the police kind of assumed that he had jumped off the bridge and committed suicide. Although no remains have ever been found. That's so spooky. Really, we don't really know what happened to him. But the band uh, did keep up some hope for, for several, many years afterwards. They actually continued to pay royalties of 25% into an account under his name until 2005. So like for So for 10 years. Stuff? Yeah, or... exactly. Wow. And then uh, Richie Edwards was legally declared dead on November 24th, 2008. And then they found him. Nope. Um, uh-huh. His parents obtained a legal order from the probate registry of Wales uh, to become the executors of his estate. Although Edwards' sister has not entirely given up hope of finding oh. him. Um, and recently, I think it was like a year or two ago, they actually found out that um, the timeline is a little bit different than what they had initially thought. That actually Edwards had driven over that the Severn Bridge at 2 a.m. on that day when it was found. How did not they know 2 that? PM. Um, because it was a toll road and there's a ticket from the oh, toll. Oh, so, okay. So they know his car went over the bridge on that day. Of course, they don't truly know if it was him or not. But they know that his car did, at least. So I never even thought of that. Yeah, so I'm not sure what exactly the significance of that time shift is. But when they created a timeline of what happened, they, you know, um, did uh, interviews with people who were there to try to see if anyone had seen him. And all of that is kind of out the window now because it was actually 12 hours 
you know, earlier or later oh, than they thought it was before. Yeah, yeah. So who knows if we may ever find more out about what happened to him, but at least his sister is still, you know, trying to find out. But the police basically closed it and said he committed suicide. So. Oh, my God. That's Richie Edwards. That's weird. Yep, yep. So let me think about this for a second. It reminds me of that one story of that guy who was declared legally dead and then he came back and then they were like, oh, well, sorry, you're technically dead. Can't do anything about it. Bye. Exactly. I, I, I'm I, not going to be able to find the story, but it, it, it could be one of the weird shit in the news. I think it was in India. Yes. And yeah, his, I think what had happened was he had left his wife and his family without telling them anything and gone to Turkey, I think. And then he came back like 15 years later. And by that point, his wife had declared him dead, you know, to inherit and all that stuff, right? Whatever you have to do. And then he came back and was like, I'm not dead. And they were like, you can't legally become not dead after we declared you dead. So you're dead. Although I know you're not dead, but legally you're dead. Oh my God. Okay. So I'm going to talk about for my second person, it's going to be quick because they're not, there's not a lot about him. Um, I'm going to talk about Leslie Harvey because he died. Which is the weird way he died. He died on stage. Right. So, which we believe is unique among the 27 club. I really think so. Yeah. So he was a guitarist in several Scottish rock bands in the 60s and the 70s, but he was the most known for uh, a band called Stone the Crows. So uh, in his earlier days, he joined a band called the Blues Council. This is a weird story. Uh, Joined a band called the Blues Council, and they made one record called Baby Don't Look Down. Then in March of 1965, their tour van got in a crash it killed their vocalist, uh, Fraser Calder, and their bassist, James Giffen. So then they, the band just kind of broke oh up. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... It seems like death is following this guy around. It's weird. Yeah. So, it was in 1969, four years later, when he co-founded uh, the band Stone the Crows. So, basically, how he died was he was... It was rainy, rainy day at... Swansea Top Rank concert in 1972. And basically, while they were on stage, Harvey was electrocuted after touching a microphone that wasn't earth grounded, and he died of his injuries. So, yeah, water and electricity don't mix. Not good. Not good. Right. Always ground your equipment. And then I have two quick mentions. Um, there are two rappers who um, were killed. Actually, they were both killed by guns, gun violence, which seems to be a trend mm-hmm. among um, African-Americans in general. But that's a whole other story. Uh, so I'm going to talk about Freaky Ta first. Freaky Ta. I like that name. Uh, Freaky Ta. Freaky Ta. His name is originally Raymond Rob Raymond Rogers, born in 1971, and then he died in 1999. So he was a member of a hip hop group, hip hop group called the Lost Boys. And so the people that were in that group were Mr. Cheeks, a dude named Mr. Cheeks, DJ Spig Nice, Pretty Lou, and Freaky Ta. Um, <clears throat> so they created three albums. 
And one of them, I think, do do do. LB for Life was um, released posthumously, and the, and these were I'm just reading this now. Mm-hmm. They were down. They were done on cassette, LP, CD, and download, which I think is interesting. Anyway, so um, he left Mr. Cheek's birthday party and was shot down by Kelvin Jones, a man named Kelvin Jones. Um, this happened in Queens, New York, and he was pronounced dead at the nearby uh, Jamaica hos- Hospital. The getaway driver, Raheem Fletcher, um, he got seven years in prison, and the other one, uh, Kelvin Jones, pled guilty to murder, and uh, he also got sentenced to prison, and yeah, 27. And I couldn't find much else about um, why he could have been killed but um it was the main thing was it was probably some kind of um feud mm-hmm. and then other mention is going to be a dude named fat pat he was active a little uh well let me see um yeah about the same time as freaky Ta was popular um i don't think they were in cahoots though i don't think they really knew each other fat pat was um and he was popular in Houston, Texas. So his original name is Patrick Lamar Hawkins, born in 1970, and then he died in 1998. His first two albums that were released call, were called Ghetto Dreams and Throw in the Game in 1998, um, and those were also put out after his death. Um, so he died February 3rd, 1998, also fatally shot in Houston, Texas, after going to a promoter's apartment to collect an appearance fee, uh, he was shot in the corridor outside the, the, the apartment. And I think this one's also a mystery in that nobody was convicted for it. Mm. And eight years later, his brother, rapper Big Hawk, was also shot to death. Oh, wow. Yeah. So those are my two. Okay. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I was just going to briefly mention a few other ones. So the sort of first member of the 27 Club, as far as the, the ones that you know anybody was mentioning, is a Brazilian composer, pianist, and conductor named Alexandra Levy, who lived from 1864 to 1892. That's the first one, right? That's what he's kind of known as like the first 27 Club member. And he fused the classical and sort of popular styles in Brazil at the time. And there is still an award given in his name in his native Sao Paulo. Moving on, uh, also Alan Wilson, who lived from 1943 to 1970, who was a co-founder of the band Canned Heat, who was heavily influenced by fellow 27 Club member Robert Johnson, and also friends with some of the other ones, like Janis Joplin and, and some of the other ones who were around at that time. He also played that Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, and uh, Canned Heat also played at Woodstock. Alan Wilson died of an overdose of barbiturates, but it's not clear if it was a suicide or if it was accidental. Man. He also died two weeks before Jimi Hendrix, 
and therefore four weeks before Jens Joplin. Weird. So yeah, within, what is that, six weeks of each other, three 27 Club members went down, boom, boom, boom. Wow. And then one that was also very near to another 27 Club member's death was uh, Kristen Pfaff, who lived from 1967 to 1994. She was the bassist for the band Hole, uh, who, if you, uh, which, if you recall, rather, was Kurt Cobain's widow's band, Courtney Love's band. Mm-hmm. And Kristen Pfaff died of a heroin overdose mm. just about two months after Kurt Cobain died. Wow. Yep. And then the last one um, that we're going to mention is a banda singer, Mexican banda singer. Oh, yeah. Named Valentin. Valentin Elizalde, who lived from 1979 to 2006. And he was known as El Gallo del Oro, the Golden Rooster. Um, and he sang partly narco corridos, which are songs depicting the life of drug traffickers. Yep. And he was murdered on November 25th, 2006 in uh, Reynosa, which is in uh, the Tamaulipas state in northern Mexico. And supposedly he was killed by a member of Los Zetas, which is a drug gang, because he had sung... cartel shit right there. Right, because he had sung a song uh, bad-mouthing them in the concert that he had just finished. And then they, like, basically followed him and gunned him down. Sounds like the rap world. Yep, so, you know, again, themes in the 27 Club, right? Violent deaths, overdoses, suicides. You know, it's it's a, it's a whole lot of tragedy. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I know last time we talked about if we were going to come to some sort of conclusions. I don't think you can. I think the one conclusion that I would come to is um, that... Uh, the the 27 club members almost all of them had this great drive to succeed and had a presage of their early deaths and those seem to maybe be mutually reinforcing something that was going to inevitably bring them down right a a kind of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy if yes. you will you know, because that that just keeps coming up, you know, whether it's Amy Winehouse or Janis Joplin or, you know, whomever of these people, they seem to be aware that they were burning the candle on both ends, you know, and, and that that yeah. was just not sustainable. But that that's, that's how they wanted to live. I think the coolest part is that some of them seem to have this self-awareness of it mm-hmm. and it might not even be conscious but all of them were living life in the fast lane right and trying to live up to a concept of the romantic artist that again is very much integrated in, into our society you know I, th- I think especially Basquiat you know really felt like he needed to live that bohemian lifestyle in order to become a great artist whether that's true or not much more debatable, but I think he saw it that way. Are we ready? Yeah, I Are think... Are we ready for, for weird shit oh, in the yes. news? Weird shit you in forgot? the news. I did almost forget, which is funny, because I'm usually the one who's, like, really gung up about it. Weird um, shit we, maybe in the news. Before we do weird shit in the news, let's just say, you know, thank you for listening yeah, so much. Guys. Y'all it's are great. a little long, but it was kind of our... Um, 
ending to an interesting topic right. that I've always been interested in the minute I heard about it. And I kind of heard mm. about it when I was like really young. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, thank, thanks for making it this far. Um, you know, if you would be so kind, please visit our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com yeah. slash mystery murdery thingy, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I put up some pictures from our last recording session of the podcasting basement. So if you want to see what we look like and where we record, you can take a look at that there. Oh, no. They'll know what we look like? Yeah, exactly. Um, What? And, yeah, you want to throw us a couple of bucks, that would be amazing as well. Um, And also get, you know, the weird news extra. Extra, extra. Read all about it. So let's talk about a little bit of the weird shit um, for us, but we are going to have some good stuff on that extra. So I'm, I'm going to be talking about some brains. Ew. Ooh. And other things as well. And we'll talk about the Golden State Killer and stuff that's in murdery stuff in the news as murdery well. Murdery stuff in the news. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do all that stuff if you pay us $5. Anyway, I'll do mine first. So my weird shit in the news this week is from an article uh, in Ars Technica um, by Beth Mole. And it's invasive toxic caterpillars that can kill are about to invade parts of London. Fuck that. Yes, and and I've been looking at the metrics and everything. We do have some British listeners, so... If you are in that area, you know, be on the lookout for these fucking weird-ass, invasive, toxic caterpillars that apparently are a thing, and they've got, like, really long, like, thousands of really long uh, hairs that have this toxic uh, protein in them. And apparently, not only can you become sick and get, like, you know, skin rash and stuff <gasps> if you touch them, but they can become detached and float through the air and just hit you and also infect you. Ah! And they can be especially dangerous if you happen to be allergic. That's where they can actually be fatal. So serious shit, um, but they look really weird. And I think it's just a weird concept of like these killer caterpillars. So. Anyway, my, that's my little PSA about the fucking killer caterpillars. <laughs> did, um, you, did you have something? Or? I don't know where my copy of my article went, but basically oh. um, there's a tourist spot in, you know, someplace. Um, I'm going to say Australia. Um where a lot of kangaroos like to hang around, and it's kind of like a free open space for them. Unfortunately, the humans are messing things up. Uh, the kangaroos, the, the like title of the, um, I think it was from CBS UK News, uh, or Aussie News, what, what are, one or the other, um, was that uh, kangaroos are injuring people, like carrots, Like, the carrots have made them go crazy and blah, blah, blah. So, basically, what's happening is that people are giving them too much food. And um, mainly, those foods are carrots. Mm. But people are giving them all other types of food, like chicken nuggets and and Doritos and cake and other things you shouldn't be giving kangaroos. And because of that, um, they they know they're going to get it, especially if it's carrots, because that's something that um, is more common. 
and if you move the wrong way they might see it as a as aggressive or they're going to go after you if you have that food people have been injured um, there were some pretty bad pictures. One guy was, like, sliced open in the gut, and he wasn't oh. even, like, feeding one. So it's, like, crazy. Like, they've gone, like, a little bit nuts. So, And what they've tried to do is they've tried to in implement signs all over the place telling them, like, what's the dangers of this. Um, and it's only decreased slightly, but it hasn't wow. – it still hasn't, like, really cleared out. Don't. Fuck with the kangaroos. Feed the motherfucking kangaroos, you guys. Yeah, wild animals are wild animals. <laughs> Not your fucking pets. Jesus Christ. Oh my god. I think that's funny that we both talked about, like, when animals attack. <laughs> but mine was caterpillars and yours was kangaroos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I didn't even notice that. I know. Right? When animals attack. Yeah. That used to be um, a show on Discovery Channel. Uh-huh. Yeah. I used to watch it. It's pretty entertaining. <sighs> anyway. Anywho. Are we done? Sure. Okay. Uh, bye. Tune in next week. Yes. Thank you. Please continue listening to us ramble on and on. <laughs> Good job, bye you. Bye.